Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Uh, praise the Lord. Wasn't that wonderful? Amen. I saw a couple of the boys taking bows afterwards when you were... Uh, when you were clapping, so maybe we should have a lesson on humility this morning in kids' church. That was great. Well, welcome everybody. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to see you. Welcome back from summer. We're digging back into the letter of Hebrews that we started at the beginning of the year. So if you have a Bible, let's open it to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 is where we left off in May. As I mentioned, we started a series through this New Testament letter of Hebrews in January, and we took a little break for the summer. And in God's providence, we took a break in what is beginning one of the more debated and difficult and deep chapters in not just Hebrews, but all of the Bible. And so uh, in God's kindness, here we are, digging, uh, jumping back into the, uh, to the deep end of Hebrews. But here's our plan this morning. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. We left off at verse 3, as I said, at the beginning of summer. I'll catch you up to the context of where we are to kind of reorient us to, to some degree. But this morning is going to, my goal is to do two things. I want us to, uh, and think, I'll just give you the outline up front. We're going to do a summary of the message of Hebrews just to remind ourselves of where we are in this beautiful letter. And then secondly, I want to establish for us some handlebars or the purpose of the warning passages in Hebrews. And this passage today, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, is one of the most well-known, debated, discussed, written about, studied, debated, I think I just repeated myself, debated passages in all of Hebrews. And it's one of five what are called warning passages in Hebrews. And so... Before we dig down into verses 4 through 8, which we're going to do next week, we're going to read it today and kind of do a little bit of work in it, but mostly we're going to broadly summarize and give you a theology for the purpose of warning passages in the Bible. And we want to make sure that we don't write ourselves out of those warning passages or that they cause us undue fear. I want to give us some handlebars for that. So... We're going to do that, and then next week we'll dig into these verses. Okay, before I read the text and pray, just I want you to open your Bibles. Okay, we're going to have the scripture on the screen. We're going to read a few other supporting passages. But I think it's a great habit for Christians to bring their Bibles to church. If you're the type of person that uses your phone or a tablet, that's okay. I think you should have a physical copy of the Bible, but whatever. I'm not going to bind your conscience. That's just me being grumpy and old. But regardless, I think you should have your copy of God's Word open in front of you. And I think that should be a habit that you develop, not just on Sunday mornings, but all throughout your life, opening your Bible. Now, this chapter in Hebrews, and really all of Hebrews, we're going to get into some deep waters in Hebrews 5, 6, 7, and 8. We're going to talk about the priesthood and sacrifices and covenant. It's, it's deep water. But it's not complicated water. It's, it's clear water. And I don't want to make the mistake of patronizing you by, by having low expectations that deep 
important theology somehow needs to be dumbed down for people. That's not true. The burden is on the preacher and the teacher to explain it, and the burden is on you to to listen well and for us to, to know and understand what God is saying. And friends, you can get this. Let's put the cookies on the, take them out of the top cupboard and let's put them on the counter. That's my job is to put the cookies on the counter so all of God's people can eat. Okay, we can understand this. And finally, I want you to think about this. I want you to just have this thought just sort of in in the background of your mind. Just have this this foundational confidence that, that this message that we proclaim, that is all about Hebrews, it's all about the Bible, and it is this, is that Jesus, who is God, became a man, lived among us, died on the cross, bore the wrath of the Father for all those that would trust in him, erased their guilt, satisfied God's holiness, turned it into favor, and has risen again in victory over sin, death, and the grave, and promises to bring all of his people all the way home. That's the most important truth in the universe. And that is what we stand on. It's always in the background of every text. And if that is true, then everything that we'll say today is for our good. So have this confidence as we open up our Bibles that God, who has done all of this, desires to meet with us. And let's, um, you know, I'm a little wound up. Can you, can, you, can, you, can you feel me? All right, back in Hebrews. Let me read Hebrews 4, verses 4, Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8. I realize we're jumping in. We're going to catch up. If you're not oriented to where we are in Hebrews, you'll, you'll catch up. This is the writer of Hebrews. He's anonymous to us. And he says this in verse 4, speaking about this idea of people falling away from God, falling away. From Christ. He says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. And holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Okay, these are severe words. And let me pray now that the Lord would, would help us in these coming weeks to understand what the writer's saying. Let me pray. Lord, we, we thank you for even the things that, have, that we've done together already this morning. We've been able to sing to you and pray to you and read your scripture and hear these lovely children sing. But thank you for this Sunday, for August 20th, 2023. It's, it was your day that you wrote in your book for all of us before it came to be. We rest in that good providence. Meet us here in your word. Help me, Lord, to help these people. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase and that you would show us yourself, that Christians would be fortified and that unbelievers would be convicted and drawn to faith in Jesus, that you would give them what you require of them, which is a new heart and faith in Jesus. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, before we dive a little bit into these verses in the coming weeks, first I want to just catch us up onto the message of Hebrews. What is Hebrews all about? Because it's been a couple months since we've been talking about Hebrews. Well, Hebrews, the context of Hebrews is that it was a letter written to Hebrew Christians that were likely living in Rome, and they were facing persecution. You can see the the message of Hebrews there. I'll work you through all that. I'm giving it to you all at once because I know some of you note-takers get nervous and you think that the screen is going away. That's going to stay up there. So the context, before we get into that list, the message of Hebrews is that the writer of Hebrews is writing to Christians that are ethnically Jew, most likely. In fact, definitely. That's why it's called Hebrews. And they have, they've accepted Jesus as the Messiah. They have been Old Testament, Old Covenant Jews that have followed the law. And now they have trusted in Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, as the Savior of all those who would trust in Him. And they are living in Rome, and they are under increasing persecution from the Roman Empire. And the burden of the writer of Hebrews to these Hebrew Jewish Christians is that he realizes that they are tempted because of the persecution of Christians who were at that time in Rome viewed as a cult, and Judaism was accepted as a religion amongst the Romans, that they were tempted to forsake their young confession in Christ and to go back to the Old Covenant, to go back to Judaism rather than progressing in Christ. And so the whole point of Hebrews is this writer wanting to show these ethnic Jewish Hebrew Christians that Jesus is better than what they've come from. In fact, what they've come from was pointing them forward to Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of this old covenant and law, and to stay with Christ. And so the point of Hebrews is to, that Jesus is better, so they should hold fast to him and they should draw near to Jesus. And what he does in the 13 chapters of Hebrews is he takes examples from Jewish life and he shows them how Jesus is better than all of those things, how he's the fulfillment, he's the superior revelation of God of all these things. So in chapters 1 and 2, the writer of Hebrews is telling the people that Jesus is better than the angels and the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. And you might think, well, why would he use angels? That seems like a strange thing. We would obviously believe that, that Jesus is the Son of God, and he would obviously be better than the angels. But in the Jewish mind, the angels were the, were the messengers, the, the mediators of this old covenant. So he's, he's showing them that Jesus is this mediator. He's the mouthpiece. He's, he's the personification of all that the angels and the Old Testament were pointing to. So he's better. That's chapters 1 and 2. And then he shows them in chapters 3 and 4 that Jesus is he's better than Moses, the lawgiver. And he's, he's better than what Moses promised. He's better than what Moses pointed to and could ultimately never bring God's people into, which was the promised land. And so the point of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 is that Jesus is the ultimate, final, heavenly promised land, that there's something better than these 80 years. There's something better than comfort here. There's something better than safety from your enemies in an earthly sense. There's rest forever in Christ. That's chapters 3 and 4. And then in verses, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, which we're in the middle of, 
He tells them that Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood, that the Old Testament priesthood was, was temporary, and it was, it was good, but it was ultimately insufficient because Old Testament priests were mere men, and they, they needed to offer sacrifices for their own sins. But Jesus, who is the priest once and for all, who does not need to offer sacrifices for his sin, but yet presents the power of his indestructible life, Hebrews 7 says, as the sacrifice for our sins is the true priest who is the one and the only one who can truly represent us before God. That's Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. And then he dives down into, in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, how Jesus is the better sacrifice, that, that the Old Testament and the sacrifices of bulls and lambs and goats and animals and grain offerings were, were temporary sacrifices that were never meant to ultimately finally handle the problem. And they were part of this old covenant. But Jesus is the better once-for-all sacrifice. And so in 8, 9, and 10, he's showing that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, and that once and for all now sin has been atoned for in Jesus. And then the balance of the book, 11, 12, and 13, and I'm, I'm, I'm broadly summarizing here, he's basically saying, now follow these examples of faith that you see in the Old Testament. They serve as examples to you to follow what is now the revelation of God in Christ. So Jesus is better than these things, Draw near and hold fast to him. Now, here's the point, okay? Look at each one of these things. You see the, the five areas, one and two, three and four, five and seven, eight and 10, 11 through 13. Each of these are exhortations. It's really important for you to see this, to see the structure of Hebrews. Each of these are comparisons of how Jesus is better than anything that the Hebrew Christians would have been tempted to go back to. And in each one of these sections, in each of these five sections, the writer of Hebrews issues a warning to the people. So in the middle or at the end of each of these comparisons of how Jesus is better, and this really is the spine of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews issues a warning to the Hebrew Christians about what will happen to them if they don't persist if they don't hold fast and draw near to Jesus. And we're going to look at those warnings in just a second. So how about us, okay, before we move on to the purpose of the warning passages? How about us? Because I don't think any of us are necessarily thinking about these same issues that first century Jewish Christians were facing in first century Rome, although there are some similarities. How, about, how does this apply to us? What does this look like in our context? The Hebrew Christians were facing Roman persecution. What about us? Well, on some level, I think we are in our culture facing increase, increasing social shunning, uh, maybe canceling because of our beliefs in Jesus. But I think what is more acute for us is the slow drift of cultural Christianity, of consumer Christianity, the slow drift of disinterest. It's so common. A person seems to start out well. They, they see their need for Jesus. They confess him. They trust in him. Maybe they pray a prayer. They join a church, and they, they seem to have a lot of spiritual energy. And then over time, 
The world starts to creep in. Cares start to creep in. The, the shine has worn off of their first confession, their first love. And slowly but surely, it's like the riptide of life and culture drags them away. And you look at that person that maybe years or decades earlier seemed to have this great gusto for the Lord, and there seems to be no interest, no earnestness. Maybe there's still a confession, but their heart is dry and cold for the things of God. And the point of Hebrews is that all Christians need to heed that warning. Now that brings us to the second point, which is the purpose of these warning passages. And here I want to give you handlebars for these warning passages in Hebrews, and there's five of them. And this one that we're looking at in these couple weeks, Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, is probably the most severe. It's the most difficult to wrestle with. It's the, it's the, the most intense. But first, let's zoom out. I want you to think about the purpose of warning passages in Hebrews, but not just in Hebrews. I want us to understand that warning, this, this device, this Holy Spirit-intended device of warning is all over the New Testament, and the Old Testament too, but, but let's just confine our attention to the New Testament. Let me just give you just two examples, one from Paul and one from Jesus. In Romans chapter 11, okay, we're diving down into, let me give you a little context just so you have some handlebars to understand these verses that I'm about to read. Romans 11 is the end of a complex argument where Paul is basically saying to the Gentiles, that just because many Jews did not accept Jesus doesn't mean that God's promises have failed, but it was all according to God's purposes that through the disbelief of the Jews, he would graft in the Gentiles, in other words, bring them into the true family of God, true Israel, which is Jesus, and make them true Israelites, which is to be in Christ. And now he's speaking to the Gentiles who might be tempted to sort of, sort of be comfortable in their election or their, 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 the grace that they've received in God. And now Paul is going to warn Gentile Christians in Rome, and he's going to say, now wait a minute, don't, don't, don't get proud, don't get cocky. Look at what God did to his people in the Old Testament and how they didn't follow him, and he cut them off, and he will do the same to you if you don't remain in Christ. That's the point. That's the context. Here's what he says, Romans 11, verse 19. Then you will say, he's speaking to the Gentile Christians who've accepted Christ, branches, meaning Israelites in the Old Testament that were unbelieving, branches were broken off so that I, a Gentile, might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off, meaning the unbelieving ethnic Jews, because of their unbelief. But you, Gentiles, stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then, verse 22, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you. Listen to this, provided, here's the warning, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. That's Paul. Now listen to what Jesus says. Jesus in John 15, verse 6, speaking broadly here to Christians, he says, if anyone, in fact, this is part of the Last Supper. 
he, that John 13 through 17 is Jesus speaking to his disciples, his 12 in the Last Supper. And he says in verse 6 of John 15, if anyone does not abide in me, another way of thinking about abiding is just obeying me. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So there's two warning passages, and we could read many, many more, just one from Paul and one from Jesus in Romans and 12 and, and John. And, and, then, and then we see it here in, in Hebrews. But let me just pause before we read some of the other Hebrew warning passages, and let's just reflect. Let's reflect on some of our vulnerabilities that work against us when we approach chapters like this or verses like this in the Bible. Okay, let's just admit it. We, are, we have all grown up in a culture, at least most of us, that is addicted to feel good, to, to the feels, that has made us overly sensitive to anything that comes across as authoritative. And I think one of the spiritual uh, tactics of the enemy in our culture is that he's taking all of the abuses of authority in our culture that we see, and, and, and there's a lot of problems with it. I'm not denying there's a lot of abuse of authority in our, in our culture, wicked uses of authority from Washington, D.C. all the way down. You see it in, on, in all levels of our society, and that's just and right for us to call that out. But one of the tactics of the enemy is I think he uses our perception of the abuse of authority in our culture to, to sort of then subconsciously view any authority as somehow bad or binding or legalistic. And that's not true. And we've grown up in this culture that while we're addicted to feel good, coupled with, and I don't mean to be the grumpy old guy, but I am a grandpa, so I'm entitled to that to some degree, but we, we, we do, I think, see in the American church and in major streams of the American church, poor theology guided by a desire for bigger is better, more people that makes ministries or churches or pastors feel better about themselves because the number one goal is to attract as many people as they can, build ministry empires, and in order to have that happen, the, there's a great pressure to shave off the hard edges of the Bible, which are the warning passages. And so you you know, from outside the church, we're getting inundated with this sentimentality and this feel-good anti-authority. And inside the church in many areas, it's coupled with poor theology and pragmatism that basically just wants to make people feel good so pastors can feel better about themselves because they've built large churches. And, 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 that, and the theology is, is that God is there to make you happy and healthy and fulfilled and friends that is a recipe for spiritual disaster, and what it does is it creates Christians who have no taste. They have no taste for the full counsel of God. And when we come to passages like this, we're like, oh, oh, gosh, well, boy, that just, what? In fact, in fact, uh, I, I, that's one of the reasons why we feel burdened to primarily preach through consecutive books of the Bible the majority of the time because it forces us, it confines us to not be able to skip chapters like this. I don't want to get up in the morning and say, man, I'm going to preach Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 because it's hard and these people need to hear. I don't wake up like that. I've never woke up like that. 
But it's part of what God has revealed to us. And if we do sermon series on just topical things that help us sort of navigate through this culture, it's very easy to skip passages like this because they're, they're hard to apply outside of the context of the full counsel of God. And so, friends, just a, I just want you to see that that's important that we do this. Not every Sunday can be a happy, happy, joy, joy. It's not good for your soul. In fact, the true happy, happy, joy, joy can only be arrived at, can only be found when you, are, when you, when you feel the weight of the full counsel of God and the warning of God. That proves you, it gets you there, it, 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 it defines you, it, 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 it disciplines you to get to that place in a true way, not in a shallow way. Do you see that? And so we're vulnerable, and we've come to a place, I think, in major swaths of our culture in churches that would confess an orthodox belief in the gospel, and they would believe that the Bible is true, it's, pr- it's produced a kind of allergic reaction to anything in the Bible that demands anything of us or puts any pressure on us. Don't be the type of Christian who runs away from pressure in the scriptures, or the type of Christian who cries legalism at anything that sort of binds you to obedience. Let me just mention, let me just do a little, just a couple thoughts on that word legalism. Okay, that's an overused term in our culture today. Okay, specifically, what is legalism? Legalism, in a theological sense, is anything that we add to Christ's finished work for our justification. Okay, that is legalism, and it should be rejected as heresy. So Jesus plus circumcision. That's the point of Hebrews that uh, Robert was reading from in Galatians chapter 5 today. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus a spiritual gift. Jesus plus reformed theology. Jesus plus anything is legalism if you're saying that you need that thing to make you right with God. The only thing you need to be justified before a holy God is faith in Christ alone by grace alone. That's it. If you're trusting in Jesus, if he's given you a new heart and your hope is in him and not your works, not your righteousness, but in Christ, that's the gospel. And anything added to that is legalism and should be denied and rejected as heresy. I think secondly, legalism pops up its ugly head in the church more practically and more, in a more sinister way through adding on our preferences as a means of rightness or holiness. In other words, play this type of music or hold to this secondary theological belief. And if, so yeah, we know we're saved by Jesus alone, but in order to really be on the varsity, you know, in order to be able to wear your jersey on Friday at school, you know, you got to believe this or you got to practice it this way. And Paul speaks about that in Romans chapter 14, and he says, listen, there's some important issues. And the issues in the church in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians and other places were like eating certain meat offered to idols or eat, drinking alcohol or uh, adhering, adhering to certain holy days in the Old Testament. He's saying, listen, 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 you can have your opinion about those secondary matters, but you can't bind one another's conscience. You have a conviction, follow it, but if it's not 
If it's not directly laid down and God's word is saying, you must do this, you cannot bind one another's conscience and add that to a kind of level of holiness. That too is a kind of legalism. But what is not legalism is saying that we must obey God, that we must serve him, that we must fight sin, that we must strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's not legalism. And so let's be careful about what we call legalism and what we don't. Because the warning passages, if we buy into that sort of cheap grace, that weak theology, we can find ourselves writing ourselves out of all of these warnings and accepting a kind of shallow gospel, a kind of confession only. You have the right confession, but you don't have the heart that backs it up or the actions that back it up. And friends, that, that's the type of confession that Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 7 when he says, look, you, you confess me, you say you know me, and you've done all these works, but I never knew you. And so what are the warning passages in Hebrews? Okay, let me just look at it, and then we're going to, I'm going to give you handlebars for how to handle these warning passages, and then we're going to receive communion. So there are five warning passages in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter, you tracking with me? Come on. You can understand. You're, you got this. Open your Bibles. Come on. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I want you to see these warning passages. I want you to see them woven throughout Hebrews. This is part of God's word. He says, after he's talking about angels in the Torah, he said, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, if they believed the angels and Moses in the Old Testament, how much more should we believe Jesus? Let's not drift from this. Hebrews 3, verse 12, he says, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And know who he's addressing there. He says, brothers, take care lest you, you fall away. And we just read Hebrews chapter 6, maybe the most profound and, and severe of all the warning passages. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, look what he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Listen to this. For if we He's speaking collectively to Christians. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, listen to this, listen to this language, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Wow. And in the last warning passage, the fifth warning passage in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, he says, by the way, that is the sweetest, one of the sweetest sounds in the world to hear pages in the Bible of the congregation flip. That makes me want to go Rocky Balboa on the steps in Philadelphia. Thank you for flipping the pages. And I heard your swipes too. Next time, bring a real Bible. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, that's, legal, that's legalism. Okay, I'm, I'm binding your conscience. It's just my opinion. 
Just my opinion. Hebrews 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, speaking of Moses, much less will we escape, we, if we reject him who warns from heaven. Okay, so here's what I want you to see is the, the Bible, and in particular, Hebrews, and in particular, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, are full of severe warnings. Let me read Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8 again. It is impossible in the case of those who have once, I think this, I think this sounds like Christians. Let me just, just listen to the way that the, that the target of this audience is being described. And I think it sounds like a believer. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Okay, we're going to drill down in that and look at that language next week and really try and answer this question to who's being addressed there. But let me just give you now as we end three perspectives on the warning passages in Hebrews, three views Three views of the warning passages in Hebrews. The first view is that these verses, in particular Hebrews chapter 6, is addressing Christians, and it is the view that the loss of salvation of true Christians is possible. Many, many Christians believe that. I don't have time to look at that view in total, but let me just say, I think you know where I would stand on this and where we as a church would stand on this, is that we don't think that is a correct view. Because, although, granted, granted, this is important, granted, on face value, that seems to be the implication of this passage in Hebrews 6, right? It seems like he's describing a Christian, and it seems like he's speaking about if they walk away from Christ, then they will fall away. So it seems like they have something that if they walk away from Christ, they will lose. And if this was the only verse in the Bible that spoke about the security of a believer, then I think we might be able to conclude that's possible. But this isn't the only verse in the Bible that speaks about that. In fact, there is a whole mountain of verses that speak about the assurance, the security, the perseverance, better said, the preservation of true believers. Let me just give you a couple. John 10, won't have it on the screen, but that beautiful verse at the end of John 10 where Jesus says, that my sheep hear my voice, and nothing can snatch them out of my hand. Now, that's enough for me right there, but let me give you a few more. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Listen to this. Listen to the, who's doing the verb here. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith 
for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So is your faith important? Yes. But there's a hidden hand of the providential God that's working to preserve, to keep in heaven for you, which he brought about in your life that he promises to bring all the way to the end. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, this verse right here, this, this verse is really all that I need to seal the deal. And this is often called the golden chain, the airtight golden chain of salvation. Listen to Paul at the end of a glorious argument that he makes in, in all of Romans up to this point. He says, and those whom he has predestined, meaning in eternity past he set his affection on, those, a particular group of people, those whom he predestined, he also called. In other words, he opened up, listen to this, this is the dynamics of the rebirth. So in eternity past, he sets his affection on a person that isn't even born yet, that's going to be born into sin, born dead and alienated from God. He sets his affection on them and he calls them. He causes the gospel to come to bear on their dead heart and to awaken their dead heart and give them new life. He calls, he gives them life, he opens up their ears, he makes the deaf hear, he makes the dead alive, he makes the blind see, he calls them, and he brings them back to life through the power of the gospel. That's why, that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, it is the power of God unto salvation for all those that believe. And he says in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your sins, but God made you alive. That's what the word called means. He calls you. So he, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. So the moment you're born again, the moment you're called, the moment you're alive, you have faith in Jesus. With the new heart comes the gift of faith. You exercise it in Jesus. You trust in him. Immediately you're justified. Your sins are forgiven. His righteousness is yours and you're justified. And those, this is important, this last part of this sentence is so important, and those whom he justified, every single one of them, not one more, not one less, and those whom he justified, he also, past tense, glorified. So that means that the beginning of the chain from predestination to glorification is airtight. Not one of them falls off the ship to glory. And so I, I humbly would say to my friends that believe that salvation of a true Christian is possible, I would point them to these verses, and I would say that you need to interpret unclear passages or singular passages like Hebrews 6 in light of the great wall or mountain of scriptures that say exactly the opposite. So if all these things in the Bible are saying this, then we know that Hebrews 6 can't, can't be saying that because the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself. Do you get that? So I think we can rule, rule number one out. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian if you believe that. I just think you're missing it. Secondly, and this might be called the, kind of the classic Reformed position, that the loss of salvation is not possible. Okay, and I, I just made a case, and I think that, that's, that's true. But I have a little quibble. I have a little quibble with a, a, a too narrow expression of this, that the loss of salvation is not possible, and that here, here, this view would hold that the writer is speaking to false confessors, people that are almost Christians, but they're not Christians, people who are self-deceived, self-deceived, and this is a kind of judgment. And while it is true 
that the loss of salvation for a true Christian is not possible. I think we just made that case in many verses like John 10, 1 Peter and Romans chapter 8. Saying this leaves just saying this. that Oh, well, salvation, the, the, the loss of a, salvation of a true Christian is not possible. And then saying no more about what's going on in the warning passages. Hear me on this. This is the real heart of it. Just saying that and no more is not saying enough. It takes the teeth out of the purpose of the warning passages. Here's my point. I don't think the writer of Hebrews was concerned about modern theological debates. Are you an Arminian or a Calvinist? Do you believe that Christians can lose their salvation or not? I think the writer of Hebrews would be saying, what, 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 come again, what are you talking about? He's saying, no, I'm living life with these people. And some of them seem to be going back. And I love them deeply. And I don't know what their eternity is. That's God's business. But I'm going to do what I can right now. And so I'm going to persuade them. I'm going to plead with them. Don't go back. He's giving a pastoral warning. And here's the danger sometimes about theology or systematic theology. We love it. We love to have categories and labels. But the danger is, is that sometimes it can cause us to stand over or next to God's word, saying this is the way God's word works, rather than under it saying this is the way God's word was intended to work on me in the middle of my confusing life. Which brings me to the third and final, and I think the right perspective on this. And I want to say about... View number two, I believe it's true. I believe it's true. I don't believe a true Christian can lose their salvation. But I think you need to say more. I think more is going on in the warning passages in the Bible, specifically the warning passages in Hebrews, specifically the warning passages in Hebrews 6. There's more going on than us just saying, oh, a Christian can't lose his salvation, so this somehow maybe doesn't apply to me. No. I think what's going on is that the warning passages, like this one, is a means of preserving and proving grace. Okay? Let me give you an example. Here's an illustration. I'm scared of heights. And um, have you ever seen those videos? It seems like it's always in some European, like Croatia or Italy or Greece. And people are driving these tiny little cars on the side of a mountain and a cliff. Oh my gosh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here now safely with my feet on the ground and I'm getting sweaty palms just thinking about driving a car on the side of a cliff. Just scares me. Now listen, if you're on one of those cars, on one of those roads, and you're driving and you're a good driver, and there's signs, you're, maybe the road is straight and you're about to approach a dangerous section of the road and there's warning signs that say, Warning, warning, curvy roads ahead, slow down. Cliffs ahead, slow down. You don't say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm a good driver. No, because you're a good driver, you heed the warning. Do you see that? And that's what I think is going on in Hebrews chapter 6. 
We don't live next to God's word saying these are the categories that God deals with human souls. We live under God's word and we say, listen, I'm trusting in Jesus. I believe that he is my savior. I am trusting my hope is in him and not in myself. And the way, the way, we say it all the time. We talk about God bringing you all the way home. It's not just a one-time zap and then you're on autopilot until heaven. It's the it's the warning, it's the pleading, it's the sermon, it's the conversation, it's the verse that you read, it's the Bible reading, it's the praying, it's the daily decision to say no to sin and yes to God, it's repentance a thousand times, it's asking for forgiveness, it's confessing to a dear friend, it's all of those things, it's the warning of the Holy Spirit saying, don't do that, don't do that, get off that road, because if you stay on that road, you will die. And the true driver, the true Christians, heeds the warning, slows down, and follows God's way. And so we need to heed the warning. Friends, my point is, is that it's a means of grace. I'm going to make a statement that might be strange to you, but I think it finds itself in the tension of this text. I am very certain that I'm trusting in Jesus. I really believe I'm going to heaven. And I will prove that by heeding the real warnings of God that I must obey until I get to the end. And if I don't, if I don't, I will prove that I wasn't really trusting in him. And I actually have to live that. And so does every other true Christian. We come now to the final means of the, the, the end of our service when in another beautiful means of grace, which is communion. Where we're taking this, this is Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, He says, examine yourself. Why does Paul instruct us? to receive communion often because what we're about to do with the bread and the cup is a kind of physical picture of the very warning passage that we just read in Hebrews chapter 6. It's a way of us pausing regularly and saying, let me look at myself. Am I Am I trusting in Jesus? Is, are my affections about the things of the Lord? Is my heart inclined to obedience? And do my actions follow? And if they don't, this is the Holy Spirit speaking to me, saying, repent, confess, turn from that road, slow down, get off of that track, and come back. And if you don't, you will die. And so he's given us not just this passage, but he's given us this, this ordinance, this action to take every time we gather and do it, which is once a month for us, where we remember Jesus and we don't just go through the motions and say, wow, I'm a Christian, I'm going to feast on Jesus today, and I'm going to drink the cup, and isn't it amazing that my sins are forgiven, but it causes me to reflect and say, Jesus, is there any wicked way in me? Or even more prominently, or I know that there's some hidden disobedience in my heart. And if I continue in this, I'll fall off the cliff. 
and I don't have the strength to obey, but Jesus, your spirit, I trust, lives in me, and so help me, help me, help me, help me. That's what we do when we come to the table every time. So let's, let's do that today. Let's heed the warning from Hebrews. Heed the warning of the table to examine ourselves. Let me pray. Lord, help us now as we take the cup, as we take the bread. We know from your word that this examination is, is meant for Christians. This is, what, this is a means of grace that you've given your people, not to unbelievers. So let me pause my prayer right now and say that if you're an unbeliever, you're not trusting, you know yourself not to be a Christian, what we're about to do is for Christians alone that are trusting in Jesus. Lord, now as we come, as we wait on one another, may we do more than just do a monthly ritual. May we examine ourselves and may even the most mature and seasoned among us humble ourselves under your word and heed the warning because your warning is an expression of your fatherly love for us and a means of grace by which you preserve us. Lord, nobody in this room is outside of or above or not in need of the warnings of Scripture. It is your kindness that you give them to us. So let us feel them. Let us hear them. And as needed in our lives, let us respond to them with repentance and confession and affection for the grace and the goodness of God through your Son, Jesus, as we come to the table. In Jesus' name. Amen.